I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And welcome back to Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we're going to be asking the question, how do you build leaders in a professional firm? And we'll be speaking to Russ Hagee, who's the worldwide chief talent officer of the management consulting firm Bain & Company. So, Laura, you remember in the first series, in episode three, we discussed the topic of the reluctant leader. We talked about why it was so difficult to persuade professionals to step forward for leadership roles. Yeah, because up until that point, all their attention and rewards have been focused on developing their technical and client relationship skills. And suddenly they're being asked to spend less time on that and more time on managing their colleagues. Yeah, and professional firms often like to talk about putting clients first, that famous McKinsey phrase, client first, firm second, self third. And I get that and I understand it, but to some extent, I think it might miss the point. When David Meister used to talk about balancing the professional service firm, he always emphasised that a professional firm has to compete in two markets simultaneously, the market for clients and the market for staff. So right from the start, you should be putting as much effort into attracting and developing the very best staff and preparing them to step forward for leadership roles, as well as doing all the good stuff with clients. You really can't separate them out. Yeah, so one of the things that I often wrestled with in a leadership role was this question about what comes first, the clients or your people. In an ideal world, they'd be complementary, but in practice, you're often faced with decisions where you need to make a trade-off. So an example might be, where if you're thinking of your people, it might be good for them to have the weekend off. But if you're thinking of your clients, you may need to work some weekends in order to deliver what the clients need. I guess it's a short-term, long-term thing. I mean, it's easy to get drawn into dealing with the immediate client priority because they're the ones providing your revenue. But if you aren't continuously paying as much attention to your people, then well, while you won't fall off a cliff immediately, you will slowly die from neglect. I do agree with that. And that's one of the reasons I'm really interested in talking to Russ today. He joined Bain straight from university and he's been with them for almost 40 years, very much a Bainy. He's been a fee-earning partner since 2007, but for the past 14 years, he's also taken on the role of worldwide chief talent officer. I want him to explain to us all about the integrated and self-reinforcing leadership value chain that he's built up during that time. Professional firms often ask me to advise them on issues such as partner development, remuneration, promotion, or a whole bunch of other things relating to leadership, governance, and culture. But they always tend to be approached as, as a series of piecemeal initiatives. What's really interesting about Bain is how they think of these things as an integrated whole. Okay, so welcome, Russ. It's a great pleasure to have you here with us today. And uh, we'd like to start off by putting a question to you about how you build leaders at Bain. How do you go about that? And Russ, I know you've talked in the past about the value chain concept in that. I think that's really intriguing. Can you explain more what you mean? Well, certainly. It's uh, so, Lauren David, it's a pleasure to be here uh, with you here today. On developing leaders, our business is really based on our ability to do that. Uh, we've long held that this is still an apprenticeship business. 
And the way to learn is a little bit to learn by doing. And so that whole apprenticeship idea is really embedded in the way that we think. The value chain idea, Laura, has been that we've approached this, in our view, systematically. We very much thought about we need to start with the point of articulating the behaviors that we would want to see. So we're quite clear about a set of values, a set of principles, a set of behaviors that we believe are important. We then secondly take a lot of steps around trying to align what we would call sort of the culture drivers that would reinforce those behaviors. We third are thoughtful about, I think, trying to put an infrastructure in place. Uh, this tends to have a lot of the uh, mechanics, if you would, about how we try to reinforce and role model and signal around those sets of behaviors. And then we have a very active sort of feedback process that we view as sort of key to both engaging our teams, but more importantly, using that as a chance to help guide our leaders and provide real feedback uh, to our leaders. And then lastly, I think we're we try to be conscious that this needs to continue to evolve. This can't be static, that we need to continue to adjust and to learn. And so when we sort of sort of describe that value chain, if you would, it sort of has those elements. But what we've also tried to do is not have those elements as sort of standalone, but how do they reinforce each other? And so I guess if there was another message that we would try to think about, it's how to make the integrated value chain be self-reinforcing. And it's that's the consistency of that and the reinforcement of that, as opposed to having a bunch of siloed efforts or individual initiatives of the day or the year. It's that consistency and the reinforcement mechanisms that we think are pretty powerful here. Ross, it sounds like a complete system that you described there. How do you create room for you know, those who don't necessarily strictly conform with everything that you would want of them, you know, the grit in the oyster, if you like, that moves the organization forward. I think a big part of that, David, is we have a number of elements of feedback built into this. We sort of run project teams, if that could be the language that we would use here. But we're sort of doing checkpoints on how a team is feeling with a particular leader in place every two weeks. It's a short two to three to four questions, doesn't take long, but we're able to get real active feedback and that leader is able to get that active feedback in a sort of rapid fashion. And it doesn't let things diverge very far for very long before you've got an element of uh, feedback. We have other paths where we're doing a deeper feedback loop uh, twice a year, kind of classic upward feedback mechanisms that you might see in a number of organizations. But again, we've sort of built that into our promotion processes, our compensation processes, but not just in a way to be evaluative. We also use that. We sort of celebrate and we sort of use the term those rock stars that have outstanding feedback. And so we're trying to create the role models or share the role models of people who are inspiring their teams. And then I guess back to those behaviors that I talked about a little bit, 
we use the word insurgency quite a bit. And so there's a behavior that we have here that we try to reinforce that we're actually looking for a little bit of that grit, David. We sort of view that as a source of innovation. It's a source of energy. And so I've probably talked about different types of grit perhaps a little bit. It's the positive innovation, creativity, that insurgency that comes from gear in the sands, if you would. Sometimes that gear in the sand is not good behaviors, or it's not the kind of motivating behaviors or actions that you like to see from a leader. And then I have the feedback loops where I can direct that, hear about it, course correct it, either as a leader who's either self-aware. If they're not self-aware, we can kind of point it out to them. Personally, I find this idea of feedback every two weeks quite alarming. It feels a bit like an Uber driver, you know, giving feedback after every drive. How do you make that seem a normal and a good thing within your firm? I think what we've been able to do is to find a way in which our leaders are viewing it as helpful to the end goal of the the work, the success with the client, the outcome. So it's kind of anchored in client outcomes, it allows me to also ask the question of what do you think as a member of my project team of me as a leader? And so I think a little bit by not having it all evaluative about me as a leader, but it's also anchored in our mission and our mission for work, we get a blend of that. I also made the comment that a lot of our efforts are self-reinforcing. I view that as a real important key to how we do this. I think our people do recognize this can be a very positive piece or a negative piece of both compensation and promotion. I talked a little bit about how we also celebrate the rock stars or the role models. So we're not, this isn't always evaluative. People are also feeling energized. They like to be recognized as great around this, and we celebrate that. We also end up having a set of learning and training programs that are very important to us that, and we tend to try to train and develop off of strengths. And so we use the feedback loops, even the couple every couple of weeks, to try to help people also understand their strengths. And so it's not just what are the areas where you might need to develop, but what are the ways in which your team see greatness in you, or at least goodness in you? And can we build off of those strengths? And so I think we've tried to a little bit, Laura, get a tone of this isn't all evaluative in a, I'll use the term a negative sense or a kind of that tone. It's also a, let's go make you a better leader. Let's, how do we grow you? And so it's the integration of all of that that I think allows us to make this work. And it's culturally the norm here, but I think we probably do have a slight leg up just given the way our business works, that data is king a little bit here and a recognition of that. What you're saying is you're creating this database of really concrete metrics that can balance out the power of that billable hour figure or that revenue generation figure. You're valorizing something much softer and more amorphous by turning it into hard data. That's, I think that's right. And we sort of talk about everything as a in a pair or a balance, that it really is, it's client outcomes and people outcomes. And almost everything we would talk about would sort of have that 
kind of dual or parallel dialogue, thinking, feedback, and a little bit, again, as I described the two-week feedback survey, it's got an element of how are we doing with the client results and how are we doing on kind of people, team, inspiration, and and sort of everything comes in that balanced diet. And so I, I think that helps. And we've got enough track record and role models now where, yes, promotion has a balance of the client outcomes and and people team outcomes. It's quite clear that we will hold people back for promotion if they aren't performing on the people dimensions the way we would like. All thousand of our partners every year not only get a sort of client outcome measure, they get a people outcome measure. And so you sort of know where you stand relative to your, you know, the thousand you know plus partners of Bain & Company. And so it's this balanced dialogue here that we have. We would have more partners departing Bain & Company because of bad people outcomes than bad client outcomes. We make it real that way. I tend to try to reinforce the positives of this when I sort of describe our ability. And we literally do in front of our partner team. We celebrate, quote, on stage uh, when we're in person, but you know, certainly uh, virtually as well. Those individuals who are outstanding people leaders and people also know who are the outstanding client result leaders. And so again, kind of role modeling or celebrating, this is not an either or question. You can be great at both and the power of being great at both is quite uh, multiplicative. And so those are the elements. Do we get it right 100% of the time? I would not stand in front of anybody and say, we get it right 100% of the time. And will we have a set of situations which don't stand up to our ideals and what we would want Sure, we do. Uh, All organizations will struggle at points in time and certainly with individuals. We're not immune to that. And that, frankly, to be a successful client leader in our business, you have to have people that want to work with you and for you. And if you don't have that sort of following and the inspiration of others, you're just not going to be successful here over time because just at the end of the day, people don't want to work with you. And there's a little bit of a clearing market for, you know, who do people want to work for and who don't they want to work for. And you just can't get the client outcomes uh, otherwise that way. How do you draw a distinction between somebody who's an insurgent and is a positive force for change and someone who's just a disruptive influence? I guess I'd sort of say, I think the organization can recognize or can attune a little bit that this is, dysfunctional and this is negative as opposed to this is new, different, creative, let's build on it, let's have a following. So I think any organization that would say that they can be black and white on that or that there's a solid line between those, I just don't think that's real. I think there's I think there's a fine line between those, but you got to give a little bit of rope to it to let it go. I guess my simplest answer would be like brainstorming, you got to let ideas grow a little bit. And same thing with people and ideas. The place where I would stop on that is it goes back to those behaviors and the articulation of those as an organization. I think what we're also good at is we have a a set of principles around 
teamwork and, uh, again, this apprenticeship idea. We use a phrase, a Bainey never lets another Bainey fail. It's a strong catchphrase for us. Espousing a set of principles and living by those. An organization also sort of builds muscle memory of when somebody's acting against those principles or with those principles. The power of having a set of values, a set of principles, the espousing of those, telling stories about those, history, the cultural value of storytelling. I think an organization builds a bit of muscle memory here that allows the organization to find that line a little bit over time. But you're an up or out environment. You hire X number of people straight off MBA programs and only a fraction of X are ever going to make it to partner. So by definition, you have got a tournament model of promotion, intense competition, and a very high incidence of failure just built into your economic and organizational model. So that's just the reality of how your firms like yours are designed. So how does that fit with this wonderful idea of a Bainey never lets another Bainey fail? By definition, you're going to have to see a lot of your colleagues fail for you to get ahead. I think your definition of success and failure is too narrow there, Laura. Just because somebody isn't going to make the next level of Bain & Company, I don't view them as a failure. We've taken a stance and a very proactive stance around uh, we've built a whole infrastructure, uh, if I can use that word, around how we help people depart Bain & Company in a high-quality way. I think we view part of our mission very much is we are building leaders. A number of those leaders are going to stay with Bain & Company for decades. A number of those leaders are going to find their leadership role outside of Bain & Company, and we've played an important role in enabling them to do that. We have a version, I guess the Example I would use is executive search capability. And so we can help place our alumni outside of Bain & Company. We have a very robust alumni organization. And so we maintain uh, deep relationships with our alumni. Yeah, we support our folks departing. We support them as alumni. We actually hire people back to Bain & Company uh, as well. So we've uh, built a very strong path of individuals who return. We also have lots of different roles. We sort of have an internal talent marketplace at Bain & Company as well. And maybe you're not going to make that next level within a part of our business, but we have other wonderful roles and opportunities that might be better set to your skill set, and we make those available. So we're trying to think a little more broadly and holistically. I sometimes less view myself as a consulting business. I view myself as a talent business and I have great talent here and I need to help great talent get to the right place. And that's a little bit of how I think about my business. Um, I guess the last thing, the last thing I would say, just uh, people usually don't think of a chief talent officer saying this. Some of the best messages I enjoy are the messages when people depart Bain and Company and they'll leave a message for their colleagues that they're leaving Bain and Company. Uh, and this is people who we may have helped you know, manage out of the business or help them find a role outside of Bain & Company. But the way they describe Bain & Company in terms of the friends, the colleagues, the experiences, the way they think about this place, those are some of the best messages I read. We've created an environment here where people value their colleagues and they value the organization and 
I view that as a key indicator that I think we've got the blend right here. One last question, I think, Russ, because we're coming to an end. You've talked about leadership and creating leaders and people leaving Bain and becoming leaders elsewhere. Just quickly, to what extent are the leadership skills that you acquire in a Bain environment transferable, for example, into the corporate world? I think highly transferable. We're training our people to do one, I think, is to have a real nose for value and being able to break down a problem, where's the value and how to go get it. And I think that is a valued skill in any organization. Second, we are very much developing leaders that are able to inspire others. And so we are training and developing the ability to motivate, to inspire, to coach, to mentor. Those are critical elements of being a leader. And I think those are highly transferable. Third is we are building a set of, again, a leadership trait is an ability to get others to collaborate and to sort of help manage a change process. And our core job in our business, at least with our clients, is helping an organization see a different endpoint and helping them actively change course and move. And so we have to work across all kinds of levels in our organization. So that collaboration instead of change management skills, I think, are highly valued out there. That was absolutely fascinating. And I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of unpick this because it, as you say, it's a complex system and all these pieces fit together. Thank you for explaining it. And it was really fascinating to have a chance to to spend time with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both for the time and uh, happy to share a few stories and honor being here. Thank you. So, David, what's interested you about that? I was particularly interested in this systematic approach that Bain have, the value chain, Russ called it, how he thought about everything to do with people and talent management from soup to nuts. He articulated that really well, I think, how you think of it holistically as one whole system. Self-reinforcing, impressive because it's very difficult to achieve it this kind of coherent architecture that ran through the whole thing. Yeah, I was wondering, this sounds too good to be true, but Bain are consistently ranked as one of the very best places to work on influential rankings like Glassdoor, in spite of having a ferociously intense work ethic. So whatever they're doing is clearly working. I can see that. And this machine-like system he was describing, though, it made me wonder, you know, what happens if you don't conform But he came back with this idea of insurgency. I must say, I really like that. Yeah, but the fact that they used that word, insurgency, was remarkable. It's such a value-laden word. I mean, it's really subversive. It's particularly good because this idea of the grit in the oyster, the grit that you need to create the pearl, was in contrast to everything he was saying about the feedback, which I thought, well, it almost sounded like a bit of a prison. Yeah, the whole feedback discussion was really interesting because so systematic, the way they organise it. I mean, I like the idea of turning something so sensitive and so amorphous into hard data. You know, when you have professionals who are used to approaching data in a a very cool, analytical way, like Bain consultants, maybe you can make very personal things seem safer to talk about by engaging the more analytical part of their brain rather 
than the emotional part. Yes. I mean, for example, I've heard this many times from lawyers saying, well, it doesn't matter what the firm says about promotion criteria. Ultimately, the only thing that people really focus on is billable hours, because that's the only hard number that you can look at. So you can talk as much as you like about the softer things, but people say, well, I'm going to ignore all that because we know that really you're only interested in the hard numbers. But the way he describes it, these biweekly kind of flash feedback surveys, they generate a whole database of other numbers to back up the softer stuff. Yeah, and in the process, numbers about these really subjective things become hard just because the database is so large and and has so many different inputs. Yeah. Another thing that struck me about it was that Russ is still a client service partner. He's still doing billable work. And even though his chief talent officer role must be incredibly time-consuming in a people-led organisation like Bain. Yeah, the fact that he's still client-facing is going to give him much more credibility with the partners than a standard HR professional. But he's also an expert HR professional because he's been the chief talent officer for so many years. And that, I can see, is going to make it much easier to create this sense of consistency that he conveys. So many firms, I think, cobble together a little bit here and a little bit there, and then somebody moves on, a new person comes in. But what he's describing is like an integrated machine. And you need engineers like Russ to keep it working because it's not static and it has to continuously evolve. It is. One question that also came to my mind, I did wonder, is are they really building leaders or are they just building good consultants? Well, David, we could get into a really big discussion about the nature of leadership and what it really means and and whether MBA programmes actually do build good leaders or just good consultants. I think I was persuaded by his answer. If from the very beginning, 50% of your appraisal is about you in the context how you manage, then it's really emphasising the people management side of things as well as the client side, the analytical side of things. Yeah. And the way he talked about people and talent, you definitely get this sense of it being relentlessly positive. But there was also very clearly an iron fist in a velvet glove. It's a money machine, but it's cradled in this very advanced support and development system. Yeah, David, well, maybe not always support, but definitely development. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Russ Hagee for joining us today. We look forward to you joining us next time. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts.